0: You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super SuperSapien, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage two, today we are in Nibor,
1: the Danish fans at the finish watching the podium presentation as Magnus Court received his polka-dot jersey. The Danish rider of course with EF Education, easy post, was on a bit of a mission today, hoovered up all three points on the route today from Roskilde to Nibor and well the fans were going crazy. Clearly very pleased to see a Danish rider uh, take one of the prizes today my name's Lionel Bernie, and I'm again with François Tomazou. Hi there. And Mitch Docker. G'day, guys. And where are we? I mean, this is a beautiful spot, isn't it? We're in Kurteminder, next to the the river here, outside our hotel.
2: It's not a. It's not actually a river. I think it's a fjord. It is. It's that uh, so it's it's going inland, but if you look at the map, and that's, uh, actually I think I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a fjord because the, the address of the hotel is fjord something. Ah, there So we go. Uh, I mean, you know, deduction. Mm.
1: Well, I mean, we are we've, we've got a bit of a we've got a bit of a Scandi Noir uh, detective theme in tonight's episode, and your powers of deduction there are fantastic, <laughs> Francois. And the lager that we're drinking, Mitch. Let's get a uh, a, a verdict on the beer because this is basically from this hotel, Tourneau's Brugge,
3: yeah, lager. It, it's, it's it's a great little beer, actually. Um, one thing we're noticing up here is the lagers we're drinking, they're not lagers as, you know, um, you you pommies, Brits out there know it, and as us Australians know lagers, um, they've got a bit more body to them. Yeah, you they're know, darker. They're darker. They're not... I wouldn't go as far as an amber, somewhere between an amber and a blonde. Nope. It's a beautiful colour, mm. and actually... The body in it is quite nice too. It's mm. something you can sit on. Yep. Um, this one's five point four percent, and this is brewed here. the The name Tawna's brig is that how you pronounce it? Is
2: yeah, I think it's Brug. Brug, sorry, right, is so it's hand it's brewed. Brug means it's
1: hand brewed. Yeah, hand brewed lager hmm. from this hotel. It's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. Let's crack on with stage two of the Tour de France, so the second stage in Denmark from Roskilde to Nyborg, 202 kilometers culminating with the Great Belt Bridge, or as Francois explained last night, actually three bridges spanning 18 kilometers. All of the anticipation was about the crosswinds or the crosshead wind, and while the wind did blow and there was some chaos, it didn't cause uh, you know, the huge splits that we might have seen. The stage was uh, animated early on with an early break of four riders two of them from b&b hotels cyril bath and pierre hollande plus ef education's magnus court of course and sven Erik bystrom a norwegian with the Antamarche team the two b&b hotels riders checked out early they went back to the peloton leaving the two scandinavians out in front and court hoovered up all three of those points on offer for the king of the mountains competition going over the top of the fourth category climbs in first place so he's in the polka dot jersey there was a lot of tension leading up to the bridge wasn't there and when they got onto the bridge the first crash happened towards the back and ef education easy post rigoberto uran was probably the biggest name to hit the deck he had some teammates with him eventually and uh, finally when uran was sort of within touching distance of the back of the peloton. Stefan Bissiger dropped back to close the final bit of the gap, which he did very impressively. But, uh, Mitch, just tell us a little bit about what hampered the chase back on because the commissars basically instructed the team cars to move over to the side, so it wasn't the convoy of team cars for Iran to move up through. Made it a lot more difficult.
3: It's one of those things, again, with the with the peloton, you know, this whole... This is an official rule, but it's always a little bit unspoken what you can and can't do in the convoy. Unfortunately, this is the first stage within the final part. So I feel like they did everything in their power to enforce that rule to its full extent. Even so much so that they pulled out the last five cars when it was very obvious they were going to get there. The commissaires still barraged it, which is what they call it and that means they stopped the cars so the guys have to close the gap on yeah, their own but, to they the didn't, back of the peloton. but they didn't
2: barrage uh, Lampard and Morku w- w- when they came back on you know in the cars and into the peloton mm. so is the yellow jersey treated differently
3: I think so yeah in this case it looks you know they they like i said he wasn't helped he didn't sit on the back of his own car but of course they didn't barrage it you mm. know so it's always that gray thing so yeah i think it was. Imp- I was impressed, and I was sitting on the sidelines watching uh, my old teammates do a pretty hard job. I was happy I wasn't there at that moment.
1: Well, you mentioned Eve Lampard in the yellow jersey because he was another faller. A crash a bit further over the bridge, much nearer the front as well. Quick step were pretty alert they dropped back to pace him back on again a very impressive chase back on but they did have a bit more help from the car bumpers and then finally there was a crash with 2.3 kilometers to go took out a lot of riders but most of the sprinters got through of course that was in the final 3k so everybody was safe and Mitch you were saying perhaps some of the riders caught behind but not actually on the floor would have been kind of mopping their brow a bit and thinking phew that makes our run in just that little bit easier because again it was very stressful at that
3: stage wasn't it? I can imagine a lot of those guys were like, if they didn't go down, oh, we're safe, we can roll in. Pressure's off, day done. Because I actually thought, and I think it might have happened, if the whole bunch went into that final left-hand corner, we may have seen another spill. So, I don't know if you can say a blessing in disguise, but that crash happened earlier rather in that final corner.
1: Well, the sprint itself was won by Fabio Jakobsen, the Dutchman, making his Tour de France debut, of course, selected by Quick-Step ahead of Mark Cavendish. And he makes it two wins out of two for Quick-Step on the opening couple of days of the Tour de France. Wout van Aert was second, and the time bonus he got gives him the yellow jersey ahead of Yves Lampart by a single second. Mads Pedersen was third over the line for Trek Segafredo. Uh, Mitchy were bigging him up yesterday. Danny Van Poppel was fourth for Bora and Van Aert also has the green jersey but Jakobsen will wear that tomorrow. A very impressive day for Quickstep and we will unpick the stage in the next part.
0: The cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for supporting the Cycling Podcast. We've been mentioning their new podcast, the Super Sapiens Podcast, and in the first episode, Zylin Van and Dr. David Lipman have spoken to the triathlete Eloise Duluart. And in this segment, which is a little trailer for the Super Sapiens podcast, she talks about accepting the ups and downs of the sport and coping with injury.
0: One guy I owe the rest of my life to, uh, he gave me life. And he used to say to me, it's not about the recovery. It's about minimising the regret of not recovering sooner. And I didn't believe him to understand that. And He was like, you won't understand it until you get to a place where you understand it and I was like okay fine and it's true it's one thing that I find really hard to process is that where the hell was I and how did I not do this sooner what was I thinking and it's the only I guess you can say everything bad in hindsight but it's the one thing that I know I'll live with for the rest of my life is that regret of not recovering sooner
1: find out more about super sapiens you can manage and monitor your blood glucose levels to optimize your performance go to supersapiens.com now it's our own Scandinoir drama the bridge yeah, we've been out yeah, there yeah. making making I, an episode i, I
2: survived the <laughs> <laughs> fucking bridge you know i mean when when i saw when i saw the tension of the peloton when they tackled the bridge i thought you know, these guys are Jeff like me, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of, of the in the Pluto are because I talked to Emmanuel Hubert, the RKR Samsung manager, and he said, Yeah, well, you know, I won't be I won't be at he's driving on this bridge. So yeah, I guess you know more people than you think are Jeff An- another quick one. I was told by Thierry Gouverneur the finish that you, 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 you saw that we were driving on the left-hand side uh, on, of the bridge when we should have been uh, normally driving on the right-hand side and I, I, I didn't pick the right place on the on in the car because <laughs> I, I you know i wishingly sat on in the left oh, yeah. th- thinking i would be away from the uh, the ridge and actually we, we we drove on the left like if it were like we were in britain and given told me that because the, the the crosswinds were coming from the left they, uh, they they made sure you know they were not on the right hand side of the uh, of the road otherwise in case of you know a you know, gale-force crosswinds, you know, some riders might have made it over wow. <laughs> over the
1: bridge and into the I water. I didn't think about yeah. that. Can yeah. you <laughs> imagine? As a, as a Brit, uh, we drive on the left. I didn't even notice, but now you say that. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. were driving on <laughs> yeah, the wrong of side of the road, yeah. weren't
2: we? Yeah, because That's they wanted to avoid in case of crash that a, um, a, a rider might go over the, you know, the, the, the bridge and into the water.
1: But also, they're putting them closer to the wind, you know, the, the yeah. wind would have had more obstructions in the sure, way, I but guess. In the way
2: but if they crash, they crash on the road.
1: Well, Francois survived the bridge, Mitch, Francois and I all survived the lunchtime hot dog as well, which, mm. was, uh, which was a culinary treat, <laughs> and this is the first and last episode of the cycling podcast psychodrama, Scandi the bridge. Well, we're crossing the bridge, what do you reckon the wind's doing, Mitch?
3: I actually think it's crosswind. We were back there just before we crossed the, started crossing the bridge and there's quite a lot of people there waiting for the tour to come across with flags and things like that. And from what I could see, it was direct crosswind at the bottom of the bridge and quite strong. We stopped just before the bridge to get a cheeky hot dog um, request from Lionel. The wind was strong, much stronger than at the start, quite strong. In my opinion, it's definitely a day it could split. That, that is windy, isn't it, Mitch? It's, it's so windy up here. We've just stopped
1: at the top. It is proper gale force, Qatar wind. We'd better not stay here too long. We don't want to distress Francois. Maybe need some blackout windows in the back so he can't see out. But yeah, this is this is enough wind to cause some real damage in the race.
3: Especially where it is at the race. Why, no one's got anything to lose. they come off this bridge,
1: 4K to go. I really can't see why it's not going to split today. Well, let's get across the other side and get to the finish. Where are we, Mitch? We
3: are standing, like, I mean, 50 metres from the end of the finish line here. We've just walked the pretty cool walk, actually. The last kilometre up from the finish in the crowd. I felt like a bit of a rock star. But the best part about that was I actually got a feeling for what this finish is going to be. Something I've never done before, walk to finish. Really got the feeling of where I'd want to be, where these guys, I think, they're going to go. It's hard. It's uphill, slide uphill, crosswind, and then... a of a fast down here into the finish, so you probably won't see that on TV, but it's a bit more technical than you think. But we're watching the TV here, we're stealing a TV, Steve a TV poaching, 23k to go and they're just about to enter the bridge. You can see it's just gone from calm to really hectic. It's getting lined out now.
1: They're not on the bridge, but crashes at the back or towards the back of the peloton. Was that Rigoberto Uran on the floor for EF? education easy post is that right and a dsm rider and there are splits at the back but the peloton itself is still pretty big what what do you reckon that is two groups of about a dozen
3: yeah about 15 in each group and they're chasing hard to get back on right before i think it's going to get exposed and if they do make contact potentially if it goes again they're going to go straight out the back that is all run off the back no teammates with him Not a great scenario. And the pace at the front is seriously on. Look at Thomas. Look at the Ineos now. They're going to start it here. They're in the right-hand side. The wind's coming from their left. So they've got to be in that position now if they're at the front. Teams are going to try and come over the top of them. But ultimately, they're in the right position. Luke Rowe looking comfortable and controlling things. Mads Pedersen on his own already so you can see guys this is why you might wonder not they they're not going to be in the sprint in the final it's because they're having to do these moves now on their own because their teams aren't organized Ineos at this point looking like the most
1: organized team and you can see how much effort it takes to move up because they're right over the front of the bike out of the saddle you know full-on sprint effort just to move up a few places oh mitch the yellow jersey on the floor eve lampard's bike He's retrieving it from off uh, the body of a rider, more riders down there. That looks like a bad crash for some of the riders, and what exactly happened there?
3: It's just a stress. This is the stressful moment. This is on a bridge where there's crosswinds. It might not look like it's spinning, but there's so much stress right now. These guys know that if they're not in the right position, they're coming off this, and that's the end of the race. This is just, I can't tell you how stressful this moment is in the bunch right now. Look at that. Ah!
1: It's just shown a replay,
3: and I just I can I'm cringing watching it.
1: It's affected relatively few riders, but basically those splits now are com- going to completely open up. And while well, the yellow jersey is on the floor, I mean, in this scenario with the yellow jersey crashing, there's supposed to be the unwritten rule of not taking advantage, isn't there? But I mean, the gloves are off here.
3: Yeah, 20k to go. In this kind of scenario, that that rule doesn't apply. Um, that's more early in the race, middle of the race, but not now. It's all on. Everyone's for themselves, really.
1: Well, Mitch, as everyone heard there. It promised a lot. We got very excited, but actually it was quite controlled once they were on the bridge, wasn't it? You were saying that the riders were kind of even chatting to one another. And Mm. in the sort of safety of the middle of the peloton where they would have been out of the wind, probably a reasonably easy ride. And I mean, obviously, Quickstep had their eyes on the sprint, but they had a lot to do to get into that position because... um, lots of the team members dropped back to pace the yellow jersey back up to the peloton.
3: Yeah, well, interestingly, Michael Morkov went back for, you know, Yves Lampard to help him on. I thought it was quite a funny decision there because I thought this was quite a pinnacle stage there, and he would have been very necessary for that lead-out. And in the end, as we saw the lead-out, he wasn't used that much in the lead-out. He positioned Fabio, and Fabio very impressively did a lot on his own from that final corner. Okay, we're talking about, uh, I think it was, you know, in just inside a kilometre to go, 800 metres to go. You might think to yourself, listening to this, oh, well, it's only 800 metres. But that is the pinnacle point for a lead-out man. Um, and that, as we've seen many times before, is where Michael, Michael Morkov, he shines. Mm. He wins the race, and we've said this many times, he wins the races for... sprinters how many sprinters have come under his wing and have won it but now what i loved about that sprint was fabio showed his class he actually wasn't in a great position he had to fight with peter sagan as well and he only ended was only able to get himself out of into the wind with about 50 meters to go which he then produced the most explosive sprint to win the stage so many classy things out of that sprint it wasn't like, and I'm never going to say guys are gifted the win, but sometimes you see this amazing job by, especially Quick Step these days, where it almost feels like the sprinter couldn't have done anything wrong. All he had to do was step off Michael Morkov's wheel and push a few pedal strokes and win it. Not the case this time. It was a really, really classy win.
1: Well, let's hear some reaction from the finish line. First of all, we're going to hear Kasper Asklin congratulating Fabio Jakobsen, uh, Quick Step teammates, of course. Then Yves Lampart who Francois spoke to, and finally Michael Morkov. Mikel Mercu about the chase back on and then his slightly tweaked role in that lead out effort Thank you my
4: friend
1: Casper, two wins in two days, not a bad start It's a dream start I would say
5: Uh, It couldn't be much better than that
1: what was it like coming over the bridge? I mean, it looked really stressful.
6: Yeah, coming onto the bridge it was really stressful, but uh, I think when everybody saw the
5: direction of the wind, it kind of calmed down. And what
1: about Fabio? I mean, lots of controversy about the team selection, but the first opportunity and he's won a tour stage.
6: I think the controversy was more uh, from the media than from the team.
2: Well, Eve, what a day.
7: Yes, indeed, indeed. It's a very nervous day. Uh, a lot of wind in uh, small roads, uh, a huge amount of people next to the road. Uh, it was a crazy day, but uh, in the end we take the victory and that's uh, the most, uh, most important. What, what
2: happened in the crash?
7: I had straight away the feeling in the beginning it was uh, headwind uh, f- from the left, so really strong wind also. Uh, I knew it's not going to happen uh, with the echelons, so I thought i stay out of the troubles on the inside of the bridge. I go left and uh, one rider I think from education touched the, the back wheel of the guy in front of him and he, he crashed and I had no chance to, to, avoid it, to avoid him and I go over him so uh, luckily with no, the speed was, was low and luckily with no uh, big, uh, big troubles.
2: Yeah. The yellow jersey I suppose was a big motivation to get back.
7: Yes 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 of course, uh, it's always a motivation to come back especially in a bunch print, but uh, with the jersey around the shoulders it's, uh, it's different.
6: Well, it means that uh, it's the fifth sprinter in a row that uh, we are winning a Tour de France stage with, with the team. So uh, I think that's uh, pretty extraordinary. And um, for Fabio, we all know his story from Tour of Poland coming back, now winning on the highest level. He's such a great guy, Fabio. I really enjoy that he, uh, he's now here winning a Tour de France stage win. Yeah, I, I changed my priority because I saw Eve. He had to change the bike, so I was waiting for Eve uh, to bring him back. We really respected the yellow jersey on the team, so uh, so we really tried to get him back. It, it succeeded. Um, obviously, I was not on, in perfect condition in the end, then, but uh, I still managed to place Fabio uh, next to the other fast guys. And um, and we know Fabio is is so fast that uh, that he can also win from the wheel of the other guys. Yeah, well, we was there present with a basically full team on the bridge. Uh, we hit the, the deviation or the, the the coming down of the bridge perfectly with the whole team. We were very good organized. We had of course some good horsepowers in Asgreen, Lampard, Cataneo, uh, Senechal. Uh, and, and I we took the advantage of a very strong team today. Oh well for me it's so special to ride here in Denmark and, and yesterday I was so happy that my very good friend Yves he he got that special Tour de France stage victory in my city in Copenhagen and now Fabio he will uh, never forget as well uh, that he won his first stage in in my country too so um, yeah it's already a dream to do the Tour de France here as a Danish rider but now to to win these two stages with two of my very good friends uh, it's just um, unbelievable.
1: Well you heard there Kasper Askren giving short shrift to my suggestion that uh, the the controversy about Mark Cavendish not being selected and Fabio Jakobsen getting the nod for the tour. I mean, he said that's a media thing, not something that... Um, was particularly talked about in the team, but I, I don't really believe that. I mean, it must have been on everybody's minds that, you know, the, the, the makeup of the team is fundamental.
2: Yeah, but look look, look at the results. I mean, Patrick Leferves is, is justifying his choice. I mean, Patrick fer Tom Steele, and all the guys who made decis- decisions of the case, two, two stages, two wins for quick step. And also, even the fact of choosing Florian Senechal uh, uh, instead of Mark Cavendish today, when Michael Morkel gets held up in, in in a crash, he's also justified. So it's a r- really a flawless performance from uh, from Quickstep and unfortunately for Mark Cavendish, he he wouldn't have had a, a say in what mm. happened in the, in, the, in in the first two days. You know, Lampard won on his own, <laughs> Fabio Jakobsen in a way won on his own. What what would have Cav uh, done in in that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it, it was a controversial decision. It's 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 no it, it can no longer be a controversial decision. Mm. So small, uh, you know, trivia fact. I mean, we discussed that in the car. When when was the last time <laughs> the same team won the first two stages of the Tour de France? You know, because we we said. Well, so. I
1: won't I won't spoil it, Francois. Go on. Who was it?
2: It was my second Tour de France in 1987 in Berlin. and uh, Nightheim won the the prologue and Nico Verhoeven. Won the second, uh, well, the, the first stage actually because of the a prologue uh, for the Super Complex team.
1: Super Complex, I think, yeah. no, super no L in it. Yeah, in right. in it. But it yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, impressive for Quick Step. Michael Morkoff Mikhail Murku, made the point that well, he said that five Tours de France in a row with five different sprinters, but it, that I think is him referring to his role in mm-hmm. uh, the lineup because Quick Step's run extends further back than that. I mean, just to. Uh, remind people, Jakobsen this year, Mark Cavendish, of course, last year, Sam Bennett in 2020, Elia Viviani in 2019, Fernando Gaviria in 2018, Marcel Kittel in 2017 and 16, and then Mark Cavendish before that in 2015. I haven't looked back any further than that, but I think that's a run of sprinters. Mm. But it seems like it doesn't matter which um, engine they attra- attach to the back of that quick-step train, they will get wins. Yeah, Why is that?
2: Fiftieth win on the Tour de France under the Quick Step uh, name.
3: From what I understand, and guys that I know that have ridden in the team and then left the team, it's it's about the belief. It's about the the mentality they have. This belief that they that's where they deserve to be in the peloton. That's there. What they're gonna do. And it sounds very simple. I know everyone's listening. To this going. Oh, yeah, all well, kind of all teams imply this belief. But you go to this team with that record and that talk. I can imagine in the in the team bus that mantra like that's where we're going to do that's what we're going to do and that belief is installed and then it's backed up with the way everyone rides and performs their job people just going out of their skin let's go back and think about you know what um tim de clerk does you know he's not here but he does things that people then i've had this myself sprinters say when i saw you boys on the front all day riding for me i just knew i had to got put something down and win So this is what we see always from quick step. Guys doing the extra one percenters, going out of their skin and doing something more. Then everyone, the next guy behind him goes, well, I better step up. I better step up. And it comes back to the sprinter. One, that belief. But two, their teammates have that belief and they're showing, paving the way. Everyone keeps stepping up and we keep seeing it.
1: A lot was made of Mark Cavendish. If he had been here and if he had won, he would have taken the outright record for Tour de France stage wins from... Uh, well, from himself and from Eddie Merckx, they're tied on 34. But Jakobsen's comeback story is in some ways even more dramatic than the Cavendish comeback from Epstein-Barr syndrome, which he'd been suffering from during his kind of wilderness period. Jakobsen, let's not forget, 2020, during the Tour of Poland, the kind of lockdown period, um, there was that horrendous crash that Dylan Groenewegen, as I said, took responsibility for because... um, Jacobson came off worse. He was in a medically induced coma. I mean, you can say it was life-threatening. It was certainly life-altering. I mean, he had reconstructive surgery, terrible facial injuries, and just to come back from that. I mean, Mitch, you had a really bad crash in paris Bay a few years ago, and, and the psychological demands of coming back from that sort of injury when y- you must have a kind of picture of, in your mind of what that crash was like. I mean, you can't overstate how uh, significant that Is to recover, come back, not only race, but then to win at the very highest level.
3: He's 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 got to get through it himself, and I don't know when he gets through that moment. But I myself had that period where I mine was on Arenberg, you know, and he's going through a sprint every stage. So, well, not every stage, but every sprint stage. So he's going through that um, process every time he does a sprint. For me, it was once a year, Paris Roubaix, Arenberg, and actually, it happens weirdly. I went to Arenberg again, I didn't think I was going to have any problem because I reconned it the day before and I thought I'd crushed all my demons. But when I came to that moment, all of a sudden it flooded back in and I struggled with it. So I can't imagine when you're going into a bunch sprint, every stage or every bunch sprint, how he goes through that. I'm assuming he's conquered his demons. There's been that process that's already happened. But now there's got to be moments when there's close calls. There's always is and there's something's just going to be a deja vu moment. And he's got to push it through mentally, get over it, and push on. And clearly, he has. Mm
1: -hmm. And Quickstep have had a few issues with COVID, haven't they? I didn't realise until today that a press officer's gone home, mechanics, soigneurs have been affected. And overnight, Tom Steele's a sports director also tested positive positive for covid and gone home and i was a little nervous because <laughs> i spoke to him at quite close quarters after yesterday's stage so i'll keep a kind of safe distance from you two guys here we might call <laughs> mark cavendish to replace you just in case <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> good luck with that one francois <laughs> back to the tour de france then a stat from francois Wout van Aert, the new yellow jersey, is the fifth man in history to wear the leader's jersey in Paris-Nice, the Dauphiné, and the Tour de France in the same year. The others being...
2: Eddie Merckx. No, Jacques Anquetil was the first, 1963, Eddie Merckx, 1971, Joop Zutemelk, I can't remember when,
1: (laughs) and uh, Bradley Wiggins, 2012. Wow. Mm. Kind of fitting, really, isn't it? I was actually... Quite surprised, although obviously I n- kind of knew, quite surprised that Van Aert hasn't worn the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. It feels like he's done pretty much everything else. He's won time trials, he's won sprints, he's ridden over Mont Ventoux uh, in front of everybody else. And now he has a yellow jersey, kind of you know, fitting that he has a yellow jersey in the wardrobe before the Jumbo-Visma focus switches to Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard when the mountains come. There's, there's, he said something
2: interesting uh, about last year and about this year. He said that last year as well he was struggling to win on the tour before the third week, when he did actually won, win the time, well he won in the Van Tour, but then he won the, won the time trial, you know, and all those stage wins. And, and obviously, you know, the the, 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 the achievement of the crowning you know, of it all on, you know, in Paris. Uh, so, so well, it, you know, to 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 state that you know he was probably going to to get better in the third week means you know Rocamadour, you've got the, this 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 exciting stage, you know what what can what Van Aert do there, you know, and 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 the Champs Elysees again, I mean, we'll see.
1: Before that, of course, though the cobbles, I mean, Mitch, what Van Aert and cobbles go well together. What's he actually like as a rider in the peloton? Does he have a kind of aura? I mean, he, he looks fantastic on a bike, whether he's going uphill, whether he's, on, whether he's on his time trial bike, or whether he's going over cobbles. But what, what's he like to race alongside?
3: I, I've actually got a bit of inside knowledge here. Um, you know, personally, I thought he was, a, he was a great guy. He had a great sort of feel and a, you know, a real um, sort of humble guy. But you know, I was speaking to Heinrich Halsler, who went down and did some um, cyclocross races... And he said, you know, because it's very easy to compare the two, Walt Van Aert and, and Mathieu Van Der Poel. And he said Mathieu Van Der Poel was that much more welcoming, that much more humble, wanted to get Haino involved, was asking about it, and for whatever reason, Van Aert gave him nothing. So, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting thing. He is, not, I'm not necessarily saying he's arrogant in any way, but he's, he's a bit distant. He's not the most warm, welcoming guy to the rest. I don't know what he's like when you know him. I don't know him personally. But Mathieu is much more, uh, we're doing the comparison again, but he's a much more warm, welcoming person. So I found that interesting because from the TV, I actually thought the opposite, Mm. Um, but it's, it's the other way around.
1: Interesting. I mean, he's impressive, isn't he? Um, but you mentioned Van der Poel and Pidcock. I mean, it's quite interesting that the three mm. sort of s- cyclocross phenomenons are all here in the Tour de France, all with slightly different jobs, of course. Van der Poel really leapt out in that sprint, didn't he? Because he was way back and then suddenly he was at the front, perhaps paid for that effort when it came to the to the final sprint, whereas uh, Van Art was just in uh, a, a pretty good position all, all the way through. And I guess because he was that bit closer to the yellow jersey Um, I'm sure you're trying to win the stage but not a bad consolation prize to get the
2: yellow jersey it's funny when you think about their rivalry and uh, you know and the way they kind of emulate each other last year second stage who who was in the yellow jersey Matthew van der Poel and who is now uh, Wood Van Aert you know it it, each one of them for the first time who knows about Tom Pitcock next year we'll see you know but there is obviously you know, the, the, the kind of the, 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 the match goes on, you know, they're, they're, mm. they're, they seem to be, uh, and Van der Poel, you could tell yesterday, was really going for it in the, in the, in the, in the time trial, hoping, you know, maybe to be able to grab the yellow jersey in the in the, the upcoming stages, and and for the time being, uh, you know, Van Aert is leading the way. But, however, you know, whichever race, even with the Tour de France, you, we will have that rivalry for a long time, and that's that's cool for the sport.
1: I mean, we've got two probable sprint stages coming up, one here in Denmark before the transfer back to northern France, one up to Calais on Tuesday, and then the cobblestone stage. I mean, we've got Van der Poel and Van Aert both in great position, but of course, of those two riders, Van Aert has a a secondary job, really. He won't be able, perhaps, to... Do whatever he wants on that day. Whereas Vanderpool, you would imagine, will have completely free reign to do whatever he wants because Van Aert, of course, has to look after Roglic and bingo yeah, and,
2: w- and that's that's another question. When when did when did last? I mean, that's a s- that that's a question. I don't I don't know the answer. Maybe it's a simple one. But when 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 did when did the sprinter win a Tour stage in the yellow jersey for the last time? You know. You usually I, I, you know. You have the impression that mentally to wear the yellow jersey, kind kind of uh, mm. rules you out of the punch sprints, which, which 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 probably won't be the case of uh, Van Art But, you know, I'm sure, you know, So one of our listeners will come up with a... Cipolli- with a I'm, I'm
3: throwing Cipollini out there.
2: Mm. I don't know. It may, maybe it's much more simpler than we think. Mm. And it might have happened recently. But, you know... It, it, do you think Van Aert would sprint with the same, you know, kind of, l- you know, light-heartedness with the, the, you know, jersey on? I don't know.
1: It's a good question. I don't know. One very quick style corner, Mitch, because mm. we'll we'll come back to this. I've got some more style questions for you towards the end of the podcast. But what do you think of the Jumbo Visma jersey, the the Tour de France edition jersey?
3: Right, I'm going to change it. Fashion, the Fashion Police, I'm calling it now. <laughs> We've got Corrections Corner. Let's just keep it at the Fashion Police and uh, I'll be the um, the sheriff at the moment. It's um, It looks like it's gone through the wash with the wrong piece of clothing. <laughs> Not a massive fan.
1: <laughs> it does. I
3: think I preferred the black jersey last mm, year. But mm. on Style Police, if we're doing it, I'm going to look out for some style things that are happening, whether that could be cool stuff. Everyone may be aware of my podcast talking luft if you haven't get across never have a, have a listen but I mean, the,
1: the listeners can't see the wink there um <laughs> that, that doesn't come across in audio mitch but um, yeah, good plug
3: but yes i'm interested in in cycling fashion hence the mention of cipollini just a few seconds ago but what i'm also looking for is little insights to what guys are doing in the stage because whether you whether you know or not you can tell what a rider is going to do with what they're wearing. Whether they're wearing a speed suit, whether they're wearing arm warmers, whether they're wearing a vest if it's raining or a rain jacket. An interesting thing yesterday, as we saw with Gerard Thomas, Gerard Thomas, sorry, he went to the start in his vest. It was raining. He went to the, you know, to to wait, to get ready. And, of course, the staff sort of, it was fitted tight. And as everyone knows with, especially in but the times now – everything is dialed so much so that I heard that his skin suit was even stitched up the day before to his liking he went to such an extent that he he forgot about his his rain jacket he started the time trial in his vest realized but it was too late he thought I can't take it off now and he continued on with it finished the whole time trial in his vest can you believe this (laughs) I spoke to someone today and they seem to think that that was worth about 40 seconds in time. Wow, that much? 40 mm. seconds. They said it's more important than the bike, what is on your body. Wow. It's a
1: bigger area that catches the wind. Even though there's no arms on the gilet and he was in the aero tuck position. I mean, it's interesting. Let's uh, hear from Steve Cummings, actually, the Ineos Grenadiers sports director. Uh, making his debut as a sports director here in the Tour de France. I mean, he's, he's been a sports director since the start of the... Uh, well, last year he was with Ineos Grenadiers, but this is his first Tour de France in the team car for the team. And at the start this morning, I spoke to him about Filippo Ganna because one of the other things we didn't pick up in doing our kind of On the Whistle podcast yesterday was that Ganna crossed the line with a puncture. His rear tyre was going down... Um, as he approached the finish line so I just wanted to find out from Steve Cummings uh, what had been going on yesterday because it was an eventful day for Ineos Grenadiers with Ganna's puncture, uh, Garant Thomas uh, with his unwanted gilet (laughs) and uh, a very impressive performance by Adam Yates as well so this is Steve Cummings. Steve a very eventful opening day for Ineos Grenadiers yesterday let's start at the top Filippo Ganna he had a puncture as he came into the finish do you know exactly what happened where he noticed that his tire was going flat what was it front or rear
5: uh rear and we're not we're not really sure where um where he had it it might have at the at the finish line it's completely flat so we don't know where it where he had it but so
1: I mean no way of really calculating how much that would have cost him but I guess in a race of seconds it could have been the deciding factor
5: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That, I don't know. Uh, Filippo says he didn't think that was the deciding factor. I think we missed Cioni a little bit, and the subtleties of the language. You know, it's, it's really detailed, des- like description of the corners, which I, I'm capable of doing that in English. So maybe that was a factor. Maybe a factor. He didn't feel super comfortable in the wet. Is another factor. So I don't. I don't think it would be one thing. I think it would be a combination of factors. But I do know he was. Really, really strong in uh, all the straights, and his, his power was, was huge. Yeah,
1: probably went off in not far from the worst conditions. Those guys, did they, or was, was it worse earlier on?
5: Yeah, I mean, from obs- from observation from behind them, for me, I thought G and Filippo both had the worst conditions. There was a lot of standing water on the course, which made it hard to see, um, and it made it hard to see. And Filippo slipped a few times as well, and I think that obviously that doesn't help. And then yeah, I guess you, you you slow down slightly.
1: Were you driving or were you in the passenger seat?
5: A bit of both. So I was driven. I was driven for Filippo and for G, Yeah.
1: Nerve wracking when you're that close to the rear wheel in wet conditions, even more so.
5: Um no no it's okay. We, our brakes are good. No problem. But no, you just want to do a good job for the for the guys, and it, you're always under pressure with the time. You know, you do the you do a recon, which was dry, and you make your notes according to the weather and then the rain comes and it's completely different. So given that the in this case, a lot of the teams put the favorite riders first because the, the rain was due later, it made it even more of a challenge because you don't get to see the course three or four times or six or seven or eight times, but you know, you kind of refine as you're going. So yeah, it, it, it was a challenge, but. Yeah, I think we cope with it quite well.
1: What about Garant Thomas then? Because he rode in his gilet, didn't realise that he was still wearing it uh, until he was on the course. Had you noticed when you pulled out behind him?
5: Yeah, we noticed <laughs> where the car is, the, the ramp, you know, uh, you don't really see the rider. Yeah, we didn't see it. And then um, 50 metres later, we were like, what's that he's got on? He's got a bloody gilet on. What can I say? Not Not super cool, but... Human beings make mistakes sometimes.
1: Any idea what that might have cost him in terms of time? Because when I looked at the results, having not noticed myself, I thought, well, maybe a little bit below par what we might have expected, particularly given his form from the Tour of Switzerland. So can you put a a number on how many seconds that might have cost?
5: We can't do yet, but we will be able to soon. Dan Bigham's doing the the test, but yeah, for, for sure, I don't know exactly. It cost him some time, that's clear. The first part of the TT... I was quite cautious on the radio, which I don't think helped him. I think he was nervous. Although I was calm, I was cautious. I was trying to think of the big picture. And then at like halfway, he was 15 seconds down. I think he had the time check and G does what he does so well, which is like, right, you know, he's that fighter. And the fighter came out and he relaxed, did the corners, carried the speed. And the second part was, was much, much, much better. But the power, as you say, was really high. But yeah considering where he was at Swiss and all that stuff we I guess he was and we were hoping for a little bit better result but the performance in terms of the power was really good so that's good confirmation
1: and what about Adam Yates I mean that looked like a really outstanding result and Tom Pickock as well on his Tour de France debut I mean you know, really good positions on a
5: challenging day yeah no it's sound I think for, for uh Adam from our perspective, it was definitely the ride of the day, along with Tom. I don't know. He just attention to detail. He seemed to know the course really well. He seemed to know where all the holes were, and his line and everything was was spot on. He took he carried a lot of speed. He was relaxed, and it was must have been pretty tough, really, after COVID. He was quite sick to come back and wonder where, where you are and all that in terms of his form um, and his power. Actually, it wasn't. He can do more, so that that's quite exciting. So he really did technically deliver a super super time trial, probably definitely the best TT I've seen him do
1: Well I won't get the fashion police in on this bit because uh, I need to tell all of our listeners about our collaboration with MAP and we have revealed the second of the three designs which listeners you can all vote for by going to MAP.cc that's M-A-A-P pcc MAP are our clothing partners this year, we're delighted to Uh, have them on board but extra delighted that they put so much thought into this collaboration basically imagining what the cycling podcast pro team jersey would look like if we were a pro team which of course we are in one way but we're not a pro cycling team and the jersey we unveiled today on social media both on our instagram channel and on map's instagram channel is called dot and it kind of is redolent of the 1990s Uh, The inspiration is sort of from Mapai. If you see the design with the kind of overlapping uh, shapes of colour, you'll see what I mean. So maybe it should be the Mapai jersey. Mm. Uh? Anyway, you you can vote. (laughs) Get your votes in. Uh, The winning design will go into production. A buffalo motif for our friend Richard Moore will be added somewhere on the winning design, and hopefully they will be on sale towards the end of the year. Now... We had a bit of difficulty getting out of the start this morning in Roskilde, didn't we? And I wondered for a moment whether we were going to accidentally drive into the site of one of Europe's biggest rock festivals, which is taking place this weekend. It's kind of, for British listeners, it's sort of uh, the Danish Glastonbury Uh, For American listeners, it's kind of uh, modern Woodstock, I guess. Um, Francois, are you a festival man? Do you go to like these big outdoor festivals, which include camping? I've
2: I've never been to Roskilde, you know, it was after my time. I went to Glastonbury several times, but in the in the old days, you know, uh, I saw, (laughs) yeah, I I, I saw pulp one of the great performances in the glass, Glastonbury, and as I told you the other day, I, I had breakfast with Javi Cocker at Arrogate at the World Championships. <laughs> I, I <laughs> well, he actually did did not recognise me, so I didn't, <laughs> d- I, you know, I dared not, you know, point out that you know that yeah no yeah I, I was f- I was a festival man in my uh, in my day, but never be, never been to Roskilde.
1: Well, we saw lots of people yeah. heading towards the site. Maybe they had been to see the start of the stage, and then were heading to go and see the music. Over 130,000 spectators on site this weekend. I think it finishes today. The headliners have been Post Malone, Dua Lipa, Tyler the Creator. I mean, I've, I'm very familiar with all of their work. Mitch, mm. is that your bag?
3: Don't know any of them, no.
1: <laughs> well, let's hear from somebody who's played at Roskilde. Uh, this is Huey Morgan, frontman for the Fun Loving Criminals back in the day and host of a show on BBC Six Music. And our producer, Tom Wally, works very closely with Huey, and he asked him a little bit about the Roskilde Festival and his experiences there.
8: Yo, everybody, this is Huey. I used to be in a band called Fun Living Criminals, and now I talk shit on the radio. What well, do you remember about 1996, Huey? Where were you in 96? 1996, I had just put out my debut record with Fun Living Criminals, and we were, the summer of 96, we were figuring out what all this European festival stuff was about, because in America, we can't do that, because, you know, America's a little bit loco, and you put enough people together, and they fight. But over here my god it was crazy so right ross Gild- i saw you at glastonbury 99 and i know you remember that mm. ross guild i saw you on the bill for ross Gilder in 96. do you remember yeah so ross Gild- was one of our first festivals right and we were doing buses right and the whole thing with bus traveling is you travel overnight so you wake up early in the morning and you're pulling into where you're supposed to be and i remember it was maybe it was early man it was actually late it was still it was kind of, you know, up there. It never really gets dark. So everything seems really surreal and something out of a film. And I remember fire. I remember seeing stakes with fire, like torches and shit. And being like, what the hell is going on here? And then a friend of mine going, "Yo, know, they're Vikings up here. And I was just like, wow. And it really felt like you didn't see people wearing fur and stuff like that. You know, like, and I'm not saying like fur, but like skins across their things with swords. But it could you if you did, you wouldn't freak out. I mean, it was people walking around with their own torches, like keeping the lights going. Because it was... Way before a lot of this corporate stuff got out of the UK, first of all. so like in in Europe, they were just like they had a cigarette company sponsor it and a beer company, and they were straight. And then people walked around with torches, but they were all cool. They were all huge, though. I remember everybody being really intimidating, but really nice at the same time. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to kill you, little man. I I <laughs> love your music, and you're like, oh, thanks. You know, but it, it was just and, very different.
4: And
2: it's
8: I always I always. Thing I know about Ross Gilda is like the curfew is different there. Yeah. like you can play late right you you played late when you played there right? yeah I remember us supposed to be going on like nine we hit at like 11 30 and it was no one was late tripping and I guess that's because no one really trips there I mean and that was a good way to kind of see the festival because I mean you shouldn't really be clock watching when you're at a rock and roll festival you should be like whatever's happening is happening and rapping in was happening it was fun man I remember it just being a really great show people just down for it but I remember it being very ominous Yeah, yeah, But not in a bad way But just like you'd look out And you'd be like Damn we are some crazy people Us humans Like in a good way But like wow We do some odd shit It's funny I always remember it From like MTV Is there any footage Of you from back in there Because that was always Like the big thing On on MTV over here in Europe You play Russ Gilder You get get on MTV Yeah that was a big one Yeah I remember There might be some stuff On file somewhere I I know that we were With EMI So Chrysalis rather But EMI subsidiary So they made sure They got everything So check those dudes
0: Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, tuned by science.
1: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. Francois, you wanted to talk about EF education, easy posts, bad luck over these first two days. Stefan Bissiger yesterday, two crashes, time trial, hopes dashed. Rigoberto Aran on the ground today and uh, a big chase back for them.
2: Yeah, Ru- Ruben Guerrero, Guerrero as well, you know, was impressive in the Dauphiné. Uh, I mean, the, you know, or was it Swiss? Anyway, you know, it been impressive l- lately. Uh, also, you know, hit the canvas when Lampard crashed. Uh, well, they really hard look. You could tell in a way that you know Magnus Court going for for the KOM points was a kind of kind of you know vindication for that, trying to to save what could be saved. I mean, it's only two days in the race; lots can happen. But you know, it really really went bad for them. I mean, they expected maybe to get the yellow jersey, at least a great you know standing from mm. Bissiger the, on the first day. He crashed twice. Rigo losing time and they forced you have four guys, escorting him back to the plus Guerrero crashing. I mean, you know, it couldn't be any worse. It's weird. I spoke to the to Manny Breschel this morning and the whole
3: idea of today was let's get Magnus up the road. Let's get to get the KOM jersey. It all sounded great. Of course, when we were in the car driving, we saw that he went up the road. We saw he got those points. So in my mind, I was thinking, great. They've saved it. They've re they've got the morale back of the boys. You know, the Magnus saved the day. But in the end, it could have a bit of a sour note um, because, like you said, Rigo crashing, Ruben, uh, Ruben Guerrero also crashing. And the fact that, you know, Bissinger, he had to go back as well. He was he made that front split with Nielsen, Paulus um, and he was forced to drop back and actually do a, quite an amazing turn when they did that final barrage. But on, the, on a positive note for the team, one thing I will say is that Nielsen is looking quite yeah, good.
2: Yeah, he looks mm. great. Not looks only great, his physical form, yeah.
3: but I would say he's riding great position. He finished actually, I think it was, I want to say top 20. I was just scrolling through the sprinters, I saw his name pop up. And I always, I wouldn't say love, that's not the right word. I'm always interested to see the climbers, how far up they can finish. It always surprises me. Like these are fast anaerobic efforts from big guys sprinting. And suddenly, I always used to love to see how far up um, Alberto Contador could finish. He was often like 10th or 11th. Mm. Always used to surprise me. Like, how can they be there? Nielsen was right up there, which shows me he's not only got good form, but the tactical
1: now, he's riding really good position. Well, you spoke to Stefan Bissica, Mitch. Uh, recovering from his injuries, I mean, quite strapped up. Mm. And you also spoke to the EF Education Easy Post chiropractor, Matt Rabin, friend of the podcast, about how uh, he goes about putting the riders back together again after they've had a fall. So this is Bissiger followed by Matt Rabin.
3: Well, mate, how are you feeling after yesterday? Went down, and then I saw they called you in the last minute to pull the gap back for Rigo. How was that?
9: Yeah, I mean, I was always feeling really, really good. Also yesterday, even with two crashes, I mean, the time wasn't that bad. Uh, yeah, but yesterday the sad thing is just I head in the legs, but uh, somehow the bike wouldn't turn on these slippy corners. Mm. And uh, yeah, today I was kind of like the joker in the final, because I got uh, in front of the crash with Nielsen. together, we stayed in the front group, and uh, Alberto, Jonas, Owen, all back, yeah, all in the back pulling with Frigo together. So I was standing there kind of as a joker that when they get uh, tired, they call me back and I... Uh, did one really, really long pull to just bring them back. I know, because the commissaire kept making barrages right up until the end, so they really did need you to close that final gap. How was it out there first day of the tour? Was it as hectic as it looked? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, the feeling is amazing with the crowd here in Denmark. Uh, On the other side, it's also always a bit dangerous because they're standing on the road and not on the side of the road. That makes it dangerous because we are coming with 50 k's now and we can move. Uh, But yeah, it was. Really, really stressful. Uh, lots of left and right, like in the classics. It's basically like uh, <laughs> feeling like Flanders, So you can also know, you also know how it feels. And uh, yeah, I mean the crowd was amazing today.
3: Now you're mate. There's not many more people that are more veteran than you. This is what is your 14th tour?
10: 14th Tour de France, Mitch. Yep. Yep. Yep.
3: So you know the ins and outs. You know on these days it's like very tense, build up pressure, and especially on the team today because you know Stefan. Uh, Bissiger. I tipped him as the, the favourite he's one of the favourites didn't happen today what's the fallout what's been the feel back in the bus now since he came back since he's had a couple of offs how's he been?
10: I mean first most important thing for us was making sure he's okay you know what I mean he has put a lot of hard work into this there's been a lot of uh, build up you know over the sort of last few months to sort of get him to this position and unfortunately for him you know he had a couple of spills he, he's banged up he's been on the back of the bus he's been looked at He's kind of okay, you know what I mean? He's got a few scrapes, like you know yourself. First week of the tour, there's always crashes, but in a TT, it's not necessarily ideal. So he's patched up, he's back, he's, you know, he's back on his feet, and we'll, um, we'll go again tomorrow. What about mentality? How's he feeling psychologically? Uh, to be honest, I mean, you, you'd have to ask him that yourself, but I can ima- as you can imagine, it's, it's not ideal, is it? You know what I mean? He's, he's not in the best of spirits. He's got a strong mentality. He's a, he's a, he's a really, 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 really good guy in so much as he'll bounce back tomorrow put it behind him you know there's another state there's another tt stage 20. there's a lot of racing in between just got to get ourselves on the road to into france mate.
1: well it's been a packed show chaps uh, Mitch I need to go back to f- the fashion police mm. there were some, <laughs> some extraordinary helmets in the time trial yesterday <laughs> oh, weren't yeah. there and and this new balaclava thing the aero balaclava I am I mean I'm not down with that at all I mean surely the fashion police have got to be dishing out some tickets for this yes I tell you I've been trying to
3: find out what's going on and maybe the listeners out there can help me send in some messages because if you can find out what is going on with this <coughs> this is just Unbelievable. It's, well, yeah, like you said, I had my ticket book out and I was riding away.
1: I think we need to speak to Dan Biggum at Ineos Grenadiers. He's going to be calculating exactly how many seconds uh, Geraint thomas's Gilet cost him in the time trial. But these wide helmets, I mean, they look like something from a 1980s science fiction program like Blake 7 or Doctor Who um, or Star Trek or Star Wars well, or any I'm of those. I'm less worried about the size of the helmet. I'm more
3: interested in the, the neck warmer
1: just looks wrong doesn't
3: it yeah I wasn't wondering what that was about so I'm wondering if they would have done that if for instance we'd started in France during the heat
1: wave well lastly for you Mitch we stayed in the wide hotel in Copenhagen I trailed the Michelin guide you're going to give us a little sort of two sentence summary of our first hotel from the Tour de France what did you make of it how many stars
3: we started on a bang and I'm going to throw it out early that was four stars for me Location on point. We were walking distance from the finish, and I mean 100 meters from the finish and 200 meters from the start. Amazing. Plus, it just had the, the outside had an amazing feel. You walked in, it was one of those classy hotels where they greeted you with Sir up in the lift. The rooms, on the other hand, were slightly too small for me, but inside the attention to detail was great. Comfortable bed, great shower head, choice of the overhead shower head or the the washing hose, coffee machine, wow! Coffee machine in the room, four stars, solid four stars, solid
1: four stars. Can Pardon. we ma-
2: can we mention because the, the bar has been set high from the start? We have to say that a mm. uh, food wise, oh yeah, on the first day uh, in in Copenhagen, we, we went to a restaurant next door to our hotel called U4 Mill. A little bit expensive, let's face it, but that, but Denmark is not cheap. But really, if you don't go for the very top flight uh, Copenhagen restaurants, which are very, very expensive, uh, you form a not cheap, but it was absolutely gorgeous. Well,
1: when you booked it, Francois, I looked at the menu just to check that it was going to fit within the Cycling Podcast budget. And I thought, yeah, that's fine. Not realizing that it was a kind of a tasting menu. So uh, what I thought was a main course, you actually needed three main courses to make up a, a full meal. Mitch, you missed out there, I have to say. But I've got high hopes here. But I should just say, uh, our whole itinerary was booked by Richard Moore. Because when mm. the Tour de France route was announced in October, he got very busy and booked Um, the hotels and so obviously we are we are sad but not somber i think is the the mood Um, but we want to remember richard and his enormous contribution driving force for the cycling podcast as i've said before this is the first time i've been at the tour for many years without richard and so this is today's segment the Tour to Buffalo, we go back to the 2013 Tour de France, the first time the Cycling Podcast covered the Tour. I was actually at the Glastonbury Festival, mm. uh, not in Corsica. And this is a day that the Orica team bus um, basically collided with the finish line banner and it looked for a while like they were going to have to stop the race or divert the race or do something dramatic. And this is Richard and Daniel in Corsica on the opening weekend of the Cycling Podcast coverage. After we hear that, that will be the end of the show. François, thank you very much. Thanks. And Mitch, see you tomorrow. Until then.
0: The Tour du Buffalo. Remembering Richard Moore.
10: Now, Daniel. Richard. Let's talk through that final 10 kilometres. The bunch was about 10 kilometres from the line. Yeah. When the cameras flashed too. I think Team Sky were the first to... to Tweet the picture of the Orica Green right. Edge bus.
4: I mean I understand that um, Jean-Francois Pécheur in case nobody is aware of this, was stuck on the finish line, wedged between the finish banner
10: and the tarmac like a cork in a bottle. The bus eventually reversed. I d I don't know why they didn't reverse in the first place. I think they, they, they let the tires down.
4: Oh, down. Yeah, yeah, Had yeah,
10: yeah. well, the other team buses been through the finish? There was some confusion yeah, the, the over, over whether that that bus had not followed the proper evacuation from the course.
4: I think they had. The the problem was that so for most of the day the finish arch is raised to a position which is that I think the same height as um, motorway bridges in France. But there comes a point, I'm not sure how far the race is from the finish, but at a certain point they lower the arch and it's mainly for aesthetic reasons Mm. Um, so the arch is actually in the picture on television. And it had been lowered. It was in its lowered position. And the, the bus was actually quite late um, getting to the finish. They stopped for a barbecue, I think, on the <laughs> usually, I mean, usually they get to the finish the same time we get there, don't yeah. they? We get, they get to the finish two, three hours before the finish. But this was particularly late. And he should have stopped. He should have asked for authorization. This is apparently the protocol. And there seems to be a bit of um, dispute over whether he did ask for and get authorization from ASO they say he didn't, Um, Orica Green Edge have claimed that he was waved through. Mm. And there's a fake Twitter account being set up for the the bus, which is already proving quite entertaining.
8: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.